Truth Well Spoken, the official podcast for McCann Health and an opportunity to connect across disciplines, companies, and countries in our mutual pursuit of endless truth seeking. I'm your host, Matt Silver, and for episode three, we're discussing what it's like to work on the front lines in a hospital during the COVID-19 pandemic. With me today is Steve Hoffman, one of the producers and strategists for the podcast. Hello, Steve. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Good to be back. Steve, we are now a year into this global pandemic, and I can't tell if it feels like it went by really fast or really slow. (laughs) That's right. All the days seem to start to blend together after a while. And it's funny to think that a year ago at this time, we thought it was just going to be two weeks, but here we are. Yeah, exactly. So now looking back to a year ago, uh, we were actually about to launch this podcast when offices began to close and it derailed our plans. So instead, we actually created a podcast that was only available to the McCann Health Network called Working From Home in an effort for us all to stay in touch for however long this lockdown persisted, which to your point, we all thought was a matter of weeks. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and it was a, a great way for us to stay connected as a group within the podcast, but also stay in touch with everybody at the agency when things went remote. It was, it was an opportunity for us to connect with people who we don't get to work with day in and day out and, and get some new perspectives and fresh perspective. And so it was a fun experience and a good proof of concept, I think, for us, for our Truth Well Spoken podcast. Absolutely. And so the reason you're here with us today, Steve, is because back in May of 2020, you and Andy and I interviewed a doctor who spoke openly about the challenges hospitals were facing at the start of the pandemic. That said, she asked us to remain anonymous. So instead of airing the interview, you and I co-hosted an episode with a panel of strategists to review and debate the interview's key insights. Exactly. Yep. And that was a lot of fun. And we, we definitely got a lot of good insights that were useful beyond just the podcast for us. Yeah, not just hearing what it was that she had to say about her experience, but also with an eye towards marketing uh, during the global pandemic and what the world might look like beyond. Um, And so without further ado, what what is a do, Steve? Let's find out. I I don't know. I feel like ironically asking you what what a do is uh, created further ado. So without further ado... To mark a year since the declaration of the global pandemic, we're now taking that episode public. And here it is, directly from last year's Working From Home podcast. Working from home, working from home, we're all working from home. Welcome to the WFH podcast. On May 1st, Steve, Andy, and I interviewed an HCP who asked to remain anonymous due to hospital policies. So we can't play the interview on this podcast. However, she agreed that we could circulate the transcript and discuss the interview's key insights. So to help us open up that conversation, we've put together an outstanding panel of strategists to share their thoughts on the subject matter. Please help me welcome to the podcast, Suzanne Forlenza. Hello. Pallavi Verma. Hey, Matt. Mohit Reddy. Hey, Matt. And returning for an encore podcast appearance, Steve Hoffman. All right. Hey, Matt. 
Steve, you and Joanne Duckman are the only ones to appear twice on the podcast. How does that feel? It is an honor and a privilege. So here's the question then. Who's going to be the first to three? Hmm. I think I'm on the right track, but Joanne's a tough competitor, so we'll have to see. We'll see. Exciting. Um, All right. There's a lot to cover today, so let's jump right in. At the time of the interview, the HCP was recovering from COVID herself. As a resident at her hospital, she spoke a little about working conditions when the pandemic suddenly and completely took over hospitals. So Steve, what did that look like and what are the implications? Yeah, so her response to that uh, was was really interesting. I think the the first thing that I'll, I'll talk about is that initially there was this thought it seemed like across the hospital that she's working in that HCPs felt like this was going to be something that would quickly blow over. Um, but that changed pretty quickly. It sounded like like there was this sudden panic that they're not going to be able to treat the overwhelming volume of patients. And then very quickly from there, they were strictly seeing COVID-19 patients. And so things got very complicated for them very quickly from the sounds of it. Um, and they had to make some difficult decisions in terms of who was going to be getting ventilators, who would be intubated, things like that. And so not not so much the residents, but the attending doctors were having to make those tough calls. And obviously, when you're the one treating patients day in and day out and you know them personally, um, that that can just be a heart wrenching decision to have to make. Um, so on, on top of that, the, the residents were also not being treated to the. Treated really fairly, I think I would say. Um, it was tough for them. Like they were thrown to the fire first. They were truly the the front line um, employees there. They weren't getting any days off. There was no overtime or hazard pay. There was some talk that doctors in New York were lobbying for things like that, but never heard any real follow up from that. So very difficult um, working conditions for them just in general. And then in the face of the pandemic, obviously they're going into these patient rooms. They're, they're seeing COVID-19 patients almost exclusively. And so their risk of contract contracting that disease was just exponentially higher than anybody else. And especially considering the, the shortage of supply in PPE. So, so that is basically what we heard from the resident that we spoke with. I'm curious though, Pallavi, I know that you have a few friends um, who are actually doctors themselves. I'm, I'm curious to hear if their experience was similar, if there's anything that maybe you've heard differently from that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, thank you, Steve. So I would say their experience was very similar. I don't think anyone in the healthcare community was prepared for this. Uh, so the only people that I saw that were actually prepared were people in the financial community who were tracking the stock market really closely. And I have a couple of friends in that space that early on in February, you know, were starting to predict that this is going to be bigger than people are seeing it. Um, Interestingly, from a healthcare community standpoint, you know, as I was talking to physician friends, I have a really good friend uh, who now works at a COVID only one of the few COVID only hospitals in New York City. She was actually gone on. um, She'd taken time off for a year because of healthcare reasons. She came back to work um, and she her hospital was then designated a COVID only hospital and she was assigned Mm -hmm. within the second week to the ICU of the hospital. And she's an infectious diseases specialist, so obviously was very close to all of the COVID patients. It was a terrible and highly stressful experience for her. Um, There's enormous levels of stress that these physicians were taking on personally as well. I'll give you another example, a couple of uh, friends, it's actually a couple, husband, wife who are physicians. They decided um, 
at the beginning of this, just given the exposure they had, the husband's a cardiologist, uh, wife's a PCP, the exposure they had to COVID patients and the lack of N95 masks, they actually decided to write their wills. So in all this time, they never considered it, but now they were uh, really afraid. They were worried that if something were to happen to both of them, um, you know, there would be nobody for their, and they hadn't really written wills. So the stress levels from a physician's standpoint were certainly enormous. Um, but the, what I have to say is once all of this started, the healthcare community was suddenly closer to what was happening in this space and everyone else was just guessing and there was a lot of media speculation around it, certainly. Um, so mm. it, it was, I think, in, in many ways, very different from a lot of other situations, healthcare wise, that we've been in, because typically, you know what's happening. In this case, there was so much speculation and things that I would hear from friends in healthcare were sometimes very different from what I would read in, in the media world. So Pallavi, you know, it's really interesting um, and scary that the doctors were thinking about writing their wills for the first time. So they were dealing not only with their the fear of their own deaths, um, but like Steve said, the HCP mentioned that they had to make decisions about um, some of the patients you know, whether they would live or die based on the time or the equipment that they had. How, I mean, how does an HCP even handle having to make a decision like that? Yeah, I would say, and like depending on, uh, you know, obviously the seniority of the physician, they, some of these decisions they may find, they may be closer to. Uh, but of course, none of them, I would imagine, have ever been in this sort of a situation before. So it's completely new for them and there is very limited data that they have available so a lot of these physicians are very used to you know significant amounts of data significant amount of research on uh, the topics that they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis and this was completely new so they had very limited data available as well to make these decisions so really a lot of tough calls and i think a lot of that emotion they were taking home as well i talked to another um, the couple i was talking to you about uh, the the woman is a really good friend of mine, and she was telling me how emotionally vulnerable she feels, and how much of that pain from her from her patients she's bringing home. So yeah. the family, the entire family, started doing yoga and meditation every morning, uh, just to kind of um, you know balance out the emotions and just to find ways to deal with what they were going through as a family. And. Yeah, so that's a great point. So, and despite all that, um, the thing that she said was most devastating for the HCPs was seeing what was happening to their patients. So, um, Steve, can you actually speak about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I think that's really interesting, especially considering all of the stress and the frustration that we just talked about that the doctors are going through, that they're still able to put their patients before anything else. Um, and so, what we heard is that these patients are people too, right? Like they're they're sitting in a hospital bed, they're watching the news, they're, they're hearing everything that's going on about this, um, but they're actually living it. They're one of the numbers that they're seeing on the TV screen and they were, it sounds like they're feeling rather alone and, and anxious about everything that's going on around them. And to speak to the sense of loneliness that they're feeling, there were no, um, the hospitals weren't allowing any non-essential visitors into the patient's rooms or even into the hospital at all. And so that can be extremely like fearful and anxiety driving, um, like patients are just dying alone. They're getting sicker and sicker um, without anyone by their bedside. And so that is not only devastating, I guess, to the patients and their families, but to the HCPs as well. It just goes to show how much they really do care. 
Um, but I, I think the question I want to ask, and I'm curious about, like, obviously we've seen the effect that social distancing has in the hospital, but Suzanne, I want to ask you what you think um, the effect of social distancing has had on healthcare in general. So I think it's had a, a major impact on healthcare um, in, in different ways. So I think the most obvious way is that people just aren't getting the care that they deserve, um, particularly for non-COVID related cases. So, you know, we we saw doctor's offices close. Um, we saw patients skipping appointments, not being able to get into a doctor's office or into a screening center um, because there was risk of exposure. So particularly when it comes to you know, screenings and that hands-on relationship between the physician and the patient, um, that was lost, particularly for for non-COVID-related cases. So actually, a friend of mine had a baby in the middle of all of this craziness. And a few about six weeks after having her baby, she spiked a fever from an infection. And when she showed up at the doctor's office, which was then open, um, she was turned away by the office staff at the door. And, you know, it was not COVID related. However, you know, she was still turned away because of that fever. So, you know, it's unfortunate that social distancing has had some negative effects um, in that in that case where patients are actually, you know, not encouraged to seek out the care that they deserve because, you know, COVID has taken over everything. Um, she ended up fine. She, she got taken care of, but, mm. um, it just adds another barrier to everything. Um, and then I think on the other hand, you know, when, especially when it comes to our work and how we're thinking about positioning our brands and where they fit into the, the treatment journey, um, on one of my teams, we're actually having discussions about, referrals and particularly on oncology that you know community level oncologists might actually be more comfortable keeping their patients in their offices for regular treatment um, instead of referring them out to a separate center for newer and potentially even more effective treatment um, so there's this perception about you know keeping uh, about sending your patients somewhere new and risking infection or with, with COVID. So this might just change how we communicate to physicians. It might change prescribing habits for doctors um, and targeting efforts, especially for products that are typically prescribed after referral. It's, that's so interesting. I was just going to build on what Suzanne was talking about here in terms of physicians not being able to see their patients physically and that lack of touch. You know, one other thing that's happening is that many chronic conditions are actually going undiagnosed. And I have a good friend who is a CEO of a cancer hospital network, and he talks about what he calls the COVID shadow curve. And the idea is uh, there's this dramatic spike in undiagnosed and untreated non-COVID-related illnesses and deaths, and that is a side effect of the pandemic. So a lot of screenings are down, and I know that uh, Suzanne might be seeing this in the oncology space, as she was talking about. We're seeing it uh, in the cardiovascular space, so screenings are down, um, you know, cervical cancer screenings down 68%, cholesterol panels down 67%. I mean, I can um, talk about a ton of data around it, but 
the idea being that three years, and this is a quote from my friend, right? So he talks about how three years into the future, researchers may look back at the pandemic and count the deaths that resulted mm. from undiagnosed conditions, from heart attack, cancer, stroke, or mental health. And how can we prevent that study in 2023 from being written? And how can we stop this tidal wave from causing absolute destruction? So really also thinking about, you know, chronic conditions that are now going undiagnosed and how can we, you know, um, in, our, in, in our world, right, kind of drive more patients to just go in and see their physicians um, and get you know, just regular checkups even, right, and ensure that uh, diagnoses are happening. I was talking um, to my friend, the cardiologist, and he was also telling me about this patient of his who had been who he had been monitoring really closely uh, for months. He had been monitoring this patient closely, and then something happened, um, and this patient typically would have come in in a situation like that, and he didn't come in because he was afraid mm. for COVID, and he ended up passing away. And my friend was so upset as a result of that. So Pallavi, it's it's really interesting that you bring that up because the HCP we interviewed specifically said, um, she referred to that as the next pandemic that isn't being discussed. And I know a lot of people are talking about the next pandemic and there's a lot of different interpretations of that right now. But that was the first time that at least I heard somebody talk about the next pandemic from the interview. Um, so when she said that, Steve, what did she mean by that? Yeah, so the way she referred to the next pandemic is very, very similar. I think Pallavi teed it up perfectly with the shadow curve and um, the HCPs that you've been speaking with, Pallavi. That is almost identical to the way that the HCP that we were speaking with um, described the next pandemic, like this idea that either patients are afraid to come in because they've been seeing all of these stay-at-home orders, the statewide shutdowns that's driving them away from the doctor's office, or um, she mentioned that the doctors are trying to convince patients to stay home. Um, but that leads them to be extremely concerned about a lot of those patients, especially the chronic ones who could be getting worse or they could even be dying at home. And there's just really no good way to monitor that. Um, so that's what she meant by the next pandemic. It sounds very similar to the shadow curve. Um, but Mohit, I want to ask you a question about this. Mm -hmm. Just given your background, do you think that there's anything we can do to sort of prevent this um, or at least maybe alleviate it? And if not, what can we do to recover from it? So when I when I hear the second pandemic or the second wave, to me, I mean, I'm thinking about all of those who can't get the need, that seek the care that they need, but mm -hmm. also those, those patients that are going out and not really taking the precautionary, um, precautionary safety that they should. And I feel like this is also part of that next pandemic that the healthcare worker is referring to. And it's, I feel like there really is going to be another wave. I mean, you have people going out and around and we can see that that new wave or that second pandemic, so to say, is already arising. And I feel like we weren't really prepared as a nation and as a world overall, we weren't really prepared and the healthcare systems um, were taken by surprise. And this is really going to lead to a lot of suffering um, in the near future. And I, I'm not I'm not really sure if we can protect it. As Pallavi said, it's we can do everything in our um, best interest to prevent 2023 that study from being written. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think 
I think we really need to monitor the rebound effects of this pandemic and see how we can better arm our HCPs, um, telemedicine, any alternative routes of healthcare access um, for our patients. And we are seeing this already happening. Um, you're seeing a lot of quick plays done by pharmaceutical companies to um, diversify the venues of care. And it's not only in healthcare systems, but you're seeing places like CVS Caremark uh, opening up and helping out and also other urgent care clinics. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how the healthcare um, trends are carried out as well as just the market shifts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because, like I said before, everyone these days is talking about the next pandemic and everyone has a different idea for what that is. So, you know, the HCP said that was the diseases that are going undiagnosed or the chronic patients that are staying home. You talked a little bit just now about, um, you know, the future pandemics and, and what this is going to look like down the line. I've heard people talk about the next pandemic is racism or the next pandemic is agoraphobia because everyone's been staying home. Um, so clearly this is not the only interpretation. Are there any other predictions or thoughts on uh, you know, what, what different versions of this next pandemic could be and what we can do to, to prevent it or prepare for it? Hmm. I haven't even really thought about it in, in that sense, Matt. Um, it's, a, it's a really fine point that you bring up. Um, I think as people are staying home and social distancing, it gives a lot of time to self-reflect and also reflect on your environment and things that are going on around you. And I do feel like if you look at, if you just look at the world in general, um, people are banding together to figure out resolutions, figure out how technologies can be implemented faster. Um, I mean, you even see companies like Dyson, um, which is a vacuum company, ramp up and produce a ventilator within two weeks. So I feel like the next pandemic will, will be a lot of the social issues and uh, controversies that have already existed pre-pandemic. Uh, pre I also think even more literally, um, you know, we are living in a world where an, a new pandemic is even possible. Um, maybe not at the same scale as, as COVID, mm -hmm. um, but more outbreaks in the future are, are bound to happen. So it's interesting to just read about different pharmaceutical companies and how they're adopting approaches to be more proactive um, because no one really wants to be caught on their heels ever again. Um, behind something like this. So I think, you know, even if we take this idea of a next pandemic so literally, um, it's actually, you know, shifting the mindset uh, to be more proactive, to be more preventative. And I think that may benefit that just overall health in the future. Exactly, Suzanne. And like you said, it's only a matter of time until another coronavirus mutates and is able to affect humans. Like as we saw with SARS and MERS and now with COVID, there's definitely going to be another disease that affects us greatly. I think I, just to build on I, what Suzanne was saying, I think she makes an excellent point. And this idea of really being able to change how we think and behave differently and plan for the future, I think is critical. One of the things that I've noticed is that uh, we have a tendency to go back to status quo. And this is kind of coming across with even with the current pandemic, right? Telemedicine is starting to play a really important role. And you would imagine that it would continue to be play a critical role. 
But what I've heard very recently from an HCP friend, and actually a couple of HCP friends in the community as well, is that they're not being paid for telemedicine. Mm-hmm. And a lot of insurance companies, I think starting July or a particular date in July, are going to stop paying for telemedicine. And they're expecting physicians to see their patients in person. You know, what does that really mean? I mean, there are, uh, insurance companies are looking uh, to go back to that status quo. Um, and we're talking here about planning for the future, which might be a mix of in-person and telemedicine visits. Um, there, there, There's this force from a financial standpoint, in-person visits probably make more sense for them. And we can get into that separately as to why that makes sense financially. But that should not be the approach that's taken. It, it is exactly what Suzanne was saying is that we need to go in with an open mind and design for the future versus try to go back to whatever status quo was. So again, Pallavi, you're, you're right on there. Um, and this is actually something else that came up in the interview that I think is super interesting is the whole idea of telehealth. Um, so I'm going to kick this back again to Steve, because during the interview, you actually asked if there would be any positive takeaways or new best practices in medicine. And um, she actually mentioned how experimenting with telehealth during the pandemic has really opened their eyes. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, definitely. I was really kind of, I guess, impressed with the response that we got. It was really interesting and kind of surprising to hear that um, she felt like telehealth is working. It's very effective. um, And it's proven that HCPs can keep their patients out of the hospital and they can still deliver a similar level of care. but, and, and being able to titrate heart failure patients remotely and do all that kind of stuff, it's it's fascinating, actually, that how much they are able to do um, and how well it kind of works for patients who are unable to leave their house, whether it's because of stay-at-home orders or if they had pre-existing conditions that are keeping them at home. Um, it really simplifies things for the patients. And so it sounds like it, it has the potential to make healthcare a lot more streamlined and simplified for everybody involved. Um, so I guess... Back to you, Pallavi, and Mohit, feel free to jump in on this one as well. Do you guys think that telehealth is something that's here to stay? And I guess what, um, from your perspective, are the, the pros and cons of that sticking around? Yeah, so, I would, go ahead. Sorry, I, I would definitely say that it's here to stay. From a, a, I think as a patient, as a consumer myself of healthcare services, I mean, I love the idea of being able to see my physician over the phone a lot of times. And I'm sure that applies to a lot of us. We're all busy with work. And there's a multitude of times when you go and don't go in for regular checkups or when you have an issue and you don't call your physician. So to be able to call somebody versus, uh, you know, take the time out of your busy day to go in, I think uh, is hugely relevant in the current day and age. And even as you think about physicians themselves, I was talking to this friend of mine who is a PCP. And she loves it. She was telling me how she loves being able to do one day of telehealth over the week. And it allows her, you know, so typically she works three days a week. She feels like she can do much more if she can continue to do, you know, uh, continue to be available over telehealth. So in Mm -hmm. terms of the new model, I would say telehealth is certainly here to stay. And now from a provider standpoint, they will need to work out financially what that model looks like for them. Agreed. Yeah, d- totally. And Pallavi, I, I wasn't even actually aware of the financial aspect of it, but I think that explains um, the numbers and reports I was seeing. So I was actually reading a Harvard review to understand um, the trends and what exactly is happening in, with giant healthcare systems. And early on in the pandemic, there was a 60% decrease 
in the number of outpatient visits. And like you said, um, it's, it's, it's a huge concern, right? All these patients that have chronic disabilities and uh, diseases are not able to seek the attention they need. Um, and I think telemedicine definitely has a great resolution for a number of these issues and a number of these patients. However, I definitely think that uh, in the past three weeks, um, telemedicine actually has dropped by nearly 35%. And that's obviously due to states opening back up and people feeling a little bit more comfortable about their risk of contracting COVID. Um, so they're going out and seeing the doctors if they really need to do so. And we're seeing this more so in the elderly population um, who is, probably has an urgent need. Um, but working in the cardiovascular space, working in the hematology space, um, the people with these illnesses have a direct need and sometimes they really do need that face-to-face -face interaction or a doctor having to touch the body and palpate uh, the foot to see if there's a clot there. And I feel like there are just so many medical ailments, especially in our elderly population, that it's, it's impossible to resolve with telemedicine. And although telemedicine is definitely making a greater stance um, in, in lieu of COVID, um, I do think that it's not going to be as greatly taken up as we would expect. Okay, so I have a million follow-up questions on all of this, but uh, because we're a little short on time, um, I do feel like we have to talk a little bit about advertising, uh, just because we work in advertising. So we, of course, asked um, what meaningful role pharmaceutical companies can and should play right now and how brands can advertise in a way that's appropriate and socially responsible. So Steve, again, back to you. What did she say about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so this one was, again, kind of surprising, the, the response that we got to this one, to me at least. Um, we heard that pharmaceutical companies can definitely help to support patients just by offering their support, especially when it comes to like affordability and access issues. Um, support in, the, in those two avenues is especially critical right now. Um, but what was really, really shocking to me was the openness to um, speaking to, to sales reps, it sounds like, especially obviously through virtual uh, meetings at this point in time, like Zoom or um, conference calls with the reps. It sounds like they're kind of excited to start talking about that again and start hearing about some of the other active disease states and any kind of up and coming medicines that are coming out. Mm -hmm. um, just outside of the COVID world, they want to kind of take that lens off for a bit while they can. I think you have to be sensitive geographically to the cities or the areas that are a little bit less impacted and we can start going into some of the more impacted cities later on. But some of the people who are not so wrapped up in COVID, are, it sounds like they're definitely open to speaking about non-COVID related um, medical issues. I think the challenge for us is going to be what does that new normal look like for sales reps? Because still at this point, there's no non-essential visitors allowed in hospitals. And so obviously that includes reps as well. So trying to figure out what that looks like from a sales rep perspective is going to be a, an interesting challenge in the next few years, probably. Um, but Suzanne, I wanted to ask you a question about this. What do you, um, what do you think pharmaceutical companies or their agencies actually could be doing right now? And then what should we not be doing right now? Anything that we should stay away from? Yeah, so this was something that, I mean, when this all started, I was very conflicted. Um, I found it was very complicated to determine our role um, because I kept, kept reading consumer studies, 
criticizing or complimenting different corporate responses to COVID, um, that they were either overdoing the messaging, they were being criticized for not saying anything. Um, so my big question was really like, just how do we communicate with physicians when they're bearing the brunt of this pandemic and they are just overburdened? Um, and how do we make our brands meaningful and should we be? Um, but I think the more we've had this conversation, um, the more we've learned, we've recognized that communication is important now more than ever, um, that this is really our opportunity to give physicians, you know, crystal clear info about new developments, um, you know, minimize the time that they have to spend digging for information or looking for information. Um, it's our job, I think, to really help them through this and make the best decisions for their patients. Um, because they've already been through so much. So it, yeah. it brings us to a place of determining, like, how do we actually target them, you know, with the right message at the right place um, at the right time, you know, omnichannel marketing. And so this is, this is almost like forcing that innovation on our end um, to be there more digitally, to adapt to more, you know, segmented and, and personalized messages. Um, and then also thinking through Congresses. So typically when we plan Congresses, you know, we're preparing for this day or a week long event where we're there live and everything is kind of wrapped up in that place. And I even attended my first virtual Congress last week. And it was really interesting, you know, in, in how it just like flowed into my life and my workflow. And I'm sure for physicians, it was, it was the same thing. Um, and the, the information lives on. It doesn't just disappear that day. Um, so I think it brings a new opportunity to have more innovative Congress strategies um, where we don't treat it as just an event, but an opportunity to, to capture a very, very attentive audience um, with messages that come from the Congress itself, but also social media and in other channels. That's great. Uh, Pallavi and uh, Mohit, do you have anything to add to that one? Um, yeah, and I, th I think Suzanne brings up uh, some excellent points. You know, one of the things that we've been talking to our clients about is uh, the environment, right? How pre-COVID, it was a high-touch environment. So whether you talk about the HCP patient relationship or if you talk about the HCP sales relationship, it was high-touch. You can, you're there in person, there's a relationship. And we are now in this low touch environment and in the future, you know, not knowing how long this COVID situation lasts, you would imagine it would be a mix depending on the state you are in or the um, place you're located in. Um, so how can we really the question for us is how can we deliver a high touch experience in this low touch environment? So there's certainly a need for innovation on the digital front um, and it cannot be. So we were talking the other day about how some sales reps are taking PowerPoint presentations and taking HCPs through that. So it can be that. So you can just take what you would deliver in a, when you were sitting in front of an HCP and just take them through that uh, digitally. So it, it has to be a completely different experience. And that's what, that's what we all should be planning for and designing for. So how, how can we really kind of bring in something more high touch, even though it is a digital environment? Yeah. That's the okay. lens we have on that right now. And, and going back going back into reentry, I, I feel like with COVID residing and people coming back into um, hospitals, going back out into the world, 
I feel like we, we really do need to be cautious of overdoing it or not being um, outward enough. And I feel like as marketers, as we have our clients, um, a lot of us may, may be involved in COVID teams. And as a part of being part of three different COVID teams, I think it's really interesting in the way we prioritize our decisions and make sure that what we're saying or putting out into the marketplace is really has an actual positive impact and also considers empathy of our audience. Yeah, we've all seen those TV spots that have been out there that say the same message um, about how we're all in this together. And I think they all have the exact same music soundtrack, <laughs> right? Uh, and, you know, it's become a lot of noise. So I think to what you just said, Mohi, we, we have to be um, very thoughtful in the message that we're putting out there and making sure we're doing something that's actually making a difference. And Suzanne, like you said, something that's actually meaningful um, in the roles of our customers as opposed to just doing what we think we have to do and then throwing out a logo. That's all we've got for today. To our listeners, if you're interested in being a guest or you have an idea for a future episode of the Truth Well Spoken podcast, please send an email to podcast at mccann.com. Also consider subscribing to us on your podcast network of choice. Until next time, I'm Matt Silver, and this has been Truth Well Spoken. And as a bonus, we are going to end with the theme music from our Working From Home podcast. Enjoy. Working from home, working from home, we're all